coming to get you, Barbara. I ain't one to make a fuss about a thing like that. Make your wishes. They're coming for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Deep Cuts of Horror, where we analyze the overlooked and underappreciated films in the annals of horror cinema and decide if they are deep, meaning we find some value in it and we think you should give it a watch, or if it should be cut, meaning you should probably find something else to watch with your time. My name's Dylan, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Jacob. Say hi, Jacob. Hello. Oh, sorry. Hey, Jacob. <laughs> right, no one's hi. ever made that joke before. No, they haven't. And today we are going to be reviewing the 1962 film Carnival of Souls, directed by Herc Harvey. God, what a name. Sounds like a Riverdale character. Now, just a little bit about us before we start the episode and this show, since it's our first episode. The whole point of this show in general, was to have a place where we could discuss some lesser-known films in horror since it's such a prolific genre. Um, there's a lot to weed out, and unless you want to watch, like, the big three, you know, the horror the horror movies like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, uh, you might be looking for something a little deeper, and that's what we're here to explore. Um, so today, like I said, we're discussing Carnival of Souls. Jacob, what was your initial thoughts going into it? So I did not know anything about this movie going into it. I had a vague impression that it was maybe very popular in a more esoteric sense, uh, but I, I hadn't done any research, I hadn't seen it or seen any references to it. Uh, See, I just knew it had a kick-ass poster. I have seen that poster as well, and you are right, it's <laughs> amazing. I, I really want a version of that poster to hang on my wall. And I miss it. I really miss hand-drawn posters. They don't do it anymore. Now they just use green and orange lighting to put all the cast in the main frame. It's a shame that we've kind of lost that artistry in film advertising. There, There is certainly a very unique and almost unsanitary charm to the way these old posters are drawn. I feel like everything nowadays looks so clean and it really loses a lot of its meaning. Oh yeah, I know there was a um, thing on Twitter a while back. They were talking about the most confusing trilogy in the world, and it had the posters for the live-action Aladdin, The Force Awakens, and Dark Phoenix. And you look at all three of them, they're basically the same poster with the same color gradient. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to take a look at that. That sounds hilarious. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, you should probably look into it because it's actually pretty funny. And they do that because the colors orange and blue are the colors that pop most to the natural eye in advertising. So it's really just a cheap gimmick to get people's butts in seats. I have looked this up on a quick image search, and you are absolutely right. These posters are exactly the same. Yeah, almost so like you really wouldn't even know what movie it was just at a glance. But Carnival of Souls, like even if I'm just looking out the corner of my eye, I'm going to know that poster when I see it. Just some fun facts about this movie. It's a very accessible movie to watch. Mm -hmm. In fact, just like the movie Night of the Living Dead released by George A. Romero, it was released 
because they forget there was some error with copywriting the film so it was released in the public domain so you can actually legally watch this for free on youtube and other such free streaming sources you don't need like um i know they have it on hbo max and a couple other places but necessarily you don't need to have any of those or pay 3.99 to rent it you can legally watch it for free in fact Another interesting thing about this movie and why I chose it was when it first released, it was a bomb. It was a bomb in the cinema, and since it wasn't copywritten, it was almost lost to time. But it started showing late night in the 80s and 90s on uh, late night cable networks, and it kind of generated a cult following from there. And it started drumming up a lot of support. The cult following had midnight showings, kind of like they did with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it's just kind of... Um, brought a nice subset of people into the community, which I think is really fun. So without further ado, I think we should go ahead and get into the movie. What do you say, Jacob? Sounds good to me. Now, do we want to give any kind of little film blurb? Did they even have those back then? I don't really even think they had a like film blurb. Most of them was just like, the most terrifying experience in cinemas you'll ever see. <laughs> well, then let's see whether that holds up. So whenever we start in the movie, I will say I was rather shocked just because how abrupt the opening is. You don't really have an establishing shot. They haven't really established a character or anything. We're just introduced to two cars at a red light. It's almost like you put this movie on right in the middle of the action. Yes, exactly. This movie just begins. It does not waste a moment of time. Uh, there, there's no musical introduction scene. There is no uh, little bit where we get to meet the characters. It just begins. So would you say this movie is all thriller, no filler? I definitely would not say that. And I imagine that we're probably going to talk about that a little bit later into the film. But uh, <laughs> at least in the beginning, they did not waste any time. Yeah, so as we mentioned, we see two vehicles stopped at a red light. Um, One car has uh, three women in it. The other car has two or three men in it, and they decide they're going to drag race. And so we follow some very terribly 80-yard drag racings, and that's one thing about this movie. Anytime any character is outside where you can't easily control mic sound, it's 80-yard, and it doesn't sound that great. Audio quality speaking, you're looking at the dark crystal level of ADR, but on real people. Yes, I, I thought when I began watching this movie that something might have been wrong with the video because the, the lips were matched up so poorly to the audio in this introductory scene that I, I, I didn't think that, that this was the way it was intended to be watched. Uh, I, I was the same. I was th when even when I watched it, I was like, okay, is this is this supposed to be from a different country? Is this why this didn't really catch on? Is this because I I've watched movies from Sweden and Russia from around the time, um, and I was like, okay, is this like a Russian movie? But no, I found out it was in America, and I was like, huh. I mean, when they're inside, you don't notice it as much, but when they're outside doing stuff, you can tell that they've ADR'd a lot of the lines. But we follow these characters through the drag race and through some poor decision-making on their part, they decide to take it to the world's most rickety bridge. And what do you expect would happen on this world's most rickety bridge? One of the cars goes over the side of the bridge and into the lake below. Yes, the, the car containing the three women. 
who we will learn in just a few moments, uh, one of which is our main character. One thing that I didn't know until I researched it, the director only had to pay the county where they filmed this in Kansas $12 to just fix the bridge. And I know it's like the 60s, but $12 just doesn't seem like a whole lot of money for something like this. It really doesn't, and I, I would love to know what was going on in, in the economy of that time or in that specific area that allowed them to fix this bridge for $12. I mean, I, I guess hypothetically they just had to put a few wooden boards back up, but if some guy came to me and said, hey, I want to drive a car off the side of your bridge, here's $12, I think I would be a little skeptical. I mean, it's Kansas in the 60s. They were just excited to have someone film there. But it is a little suspect, I will admit. It's very fortunate, though, because one thing about this movie that is interesting to note is the ridiculously small budget that it had, even for the time. Uh, I I think that it was maybe $30,000 that they were working with. So they used a lot of perhaps unconventional uh, tactics to get it done. Yes, I heard they were doing guerrilla filmmaking with it, and I wasn't really familiar with the term until I saw the movie The Terminator, in which uh, James Cameron actually used a lot of guerrilla filmmaking. Only I haven't decided yet if in Terminator it was more obvious or less obvious than this movie, because on one hand you have a movie where you have Arnold Schwarzenegger just walking around with a gun, getting live people's reactions to that, versus (laughs) Carnival of Souls, where you just have a... um, lady running around acting like people can't hear or see her. (laughs) So I didn't know that about the Terminator. That's very interesting. I will have to go back and see if I can tell. But I think it's probably ultimately a lot harder to detect in these older films simply because the way they're acted and the way they're shot. Watching this movie, um, even the best of acting is very amateurish by today's standards of course even in the 60s we were still transitioning into the language of film you still had a lot of people that preferred a more theatrical approach to screen acting as a as opposed to um the screen acting we know now you know it's two different forms um but you know all in all um I I feel like it was just fun. I feel like they just got a bunch of people together who just wanted to make a movie, and they 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 just did. Because most of these people, if you look them up, they didn't really do anything else. Not really. Not even the director. This was his only feature-length film. He was like, you know what? Why try to capture lightning in a bottle bottle twice? Uh, anyway, we should probably get back to the uh, the actual plot of the movie. Oh, right, the movie, the movie we're reviewing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, um, the, they, they're dredging the lake to try to find what happened to this vehicle. And during this time, the uh, men who are in the car drag racing with them are being questioned by the police. And they're saying that they were just trying to get around them and they weren't drag racing, which I think is just a crock of shit. Just a crock of shit that they would try to do that. Well, what do you mean by a crock of shit? I mean, obviously they're lying. We watched what really happened. But would you t- would you want to tell the police that you were responsible for the deaths of three women because you were performing in what I assume to be illegal activity on the road? It might not have actually been illegal at the time. Illegal? Come on. Okay, it's, they spent 12 bucks. They spent 12 bucks to film this. I feel like the actual town wouldn't have any problem with people drag racing on this bridge. Fair enough. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure like if the guy had 12 bucks on him, he could easily get out of this. He could say he pushed the car himself off the bridge and just pay 12 bucks and it would just be settled. But anyway, um, while they're trying to dredge the lake, we see our, our main character, Mary, uh, merge from the water onto the bank. And I, I couldn't find it in the scene. I had to actually go up and look up what her name was. I think it's only ever mentioned in this movie once or twice. And it's, again, horrible ADR. Like, the crowd is ADR'd, and so I feel like I just put that in the back burner of my brain. Yeah, so it's also due to the fact that the abrupt introduction to this film kind of sets your brain on high alert, and you're trying really hard to process every bit of information that you get, and some of it just flies under the radar. The way we learned that her name is Mary Henry is there's just some ad lib in the background of a guy saying, that's Mary Henry. I feel like that was just the director being like, oh crap, we haven't named this person. So they had ADR. Oh look, it's Mary Henry, the protagonist of our movie. It is important to note though that we find out from the police who are trying to fish this car out of the water that mm -hmm. it has been submerged for three hours. So when this woman miraculously appears on shore unharmed, she has been submerged in this river or otherwise missing for three hours at this point. Wouldn't that raise a couple questions? Oh, I think it would raise an enormous number of questions. And in fairness, they do ask her. Like, people come up to her on the beach and they say, you know, how did how did you survive? What, what happened to the other girls? And she just has this really creepy delivery of the line, I don't remember. From here, we get our title sequence where we find out the title of the movie and the credits roll. Um, and this is pretty much our introduction to the movie. We don't really know what role Mary is going to play in the grand scheme of this, mostly because our opening vignette hasn't really given us anything to go off of in terms of who we're really supposed to latch on to as a character. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, despite the fact that you can easily miss her name, it is obvious that Mary is the main character, but we're not really given any indication of what this film is going to be about. We, we watched a car accident and a miraculous survival, and then we roll the intro credits. I mean, I would have, I would have just liked to have three or four minutes where we see maybe the three girls interacting. Make us care that they went overboard. Give us an explanation why they felt the need to just drag race people. And, you know, with our main character, as we'll see throughout the film, we I feel like we needed maybe three or four minutes before to see her interacting with people so we had an idea of, you know, who this person is before we're forced to kind of latch on to her as the main character. I absolutely agree. So, not to get uh, too ahead of myself, but we will find out over the course of this film a lot more about Mary's personality and her disposition toward uh, other people. And with that new information, it becomes very strange that she would have found herself in this situation in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like, knowing what we know about uh, Mary from having finished watching the film... Why was she in this drag race? Why was she hanging out with these two women? How did she behave, you know, in the moments leading up to this event? I would have really loved to know that, and I think it would have added a lot of important context to the story. Yes, because from what we, from what we get from it, it's almost like they're two different characters. Uh, but we can only hypothesize about that because she doesn't her and her friends don't really have any lines at the opening of the film until they go off the bridge 
Like, there's just nothing really to latch on to. I think the, the only lines of dialogue are the gentleman in the car saying, Hey, you want to drag? And then the driver, who's not even our main character, just says, Sure. <laughs> I feel like that was improv. I, w- I want to know how much of this movie was improv. Because there's sometimes you see the actors, they deliver a line, and they don't really seem confident in the line they're given. Now, I don't know if that's because um, the quality of the script... Because some of these lines don't just roll off the tongue. Or if they were just told, okay, this is the scene, go. (laughs) Well, I'll let you in on the real dirty secret. Driving off the bridge was improvised. (laughs) That was not supposed to happen. (laughs) But it inspired the entire rest of this film. After the credits, um, we are, I guess, reintroduced to the character of Mary. She is in an organ warehouse question mark (laughs) it's a a warehouse or maybe a factory uh i kind of thought at first it was a church but there's a few scenes that lead you to the conclusion that it is some type of production facility right and from here from here we learn that she has trained to be a professional organist and she's going to be a church organist in utah and that is where she's headed. Now, they don't... Do they allude to how much time has passed between um, the car accident and where we are now in the story? To my knowledge, they do not, which is uh, somewhat concerning because the the gentleman that she's speaking with, I I guess he's the factory boss or Mm -hmm. something like that, he asks her if she's uh, going to be delayed by her accident. Which to me implies that it's happened relatively with some soon. Deg- yes, with some degree of recency, right? And now it could have happened literally that morning or a week ago, but it's no significant period of time has passed. Which I find strange because you mentioned wanting more context for Mary interacting with her friends. She doesn't seem to be all too torn up about the fact that her friends have died. You know, we, we see her on the shore emerging from this accident the police are talking to her and then all of a sudden she's just in this factory playing an organ right and she mentions to the factory boss uh, she kind of has a laissez-faire opinion about her job being a church organist um whereas especially then but even now you'd expect a church organist to come to the table with some sort of reverence for the quality of work that they're doing and but our main character mary says that you know it's just a business to her like any other kind of job and i i i would love to see if you know maybe that attitude was different before the accident exactly and if it was different before the accident then i think it would have added an entirely different layer to this movie but I, but I 100% feel that the character we see in the beginning, who is, you know, passenger side seat to this accident, who's all gung-ho to drag race, like it's the most fun thing you can do, um, I don't feel like that individual would be a church organist, even, even a detached church organist. Um, but it's also here that we are told by the factory owner that he tells mary it's not enough just to be smart and have wit for playing music you also have to have soul and put your soul into it 
this is the first instance of what will come to be many interactions between Mary and other characters in which the word soul is mentioned with a sense of importance. Because she's the sole survivor? Yes, she is the sole survivor. I think that might be a coincidence. It really gives the impression that there is some type of shift in Mary's personality or, or something about her disposition toward religion and other people that has that has changed or that is perhaps lacking in some way. And we're gonna we'll explore that a lot more as she interacts with different characters. Right. We're led to believe that it's that kind of detachment that has led her to decide to go off to Utah. Which maybe that just it's implied that it's abrupt in the story, but it feels even more abrupt, I guess, again, because we don't really know this character. But now she's going to Utah to be a uh, professional church organist now that she's out of school. Which, on the subject, and this is maybe a little tangential, but I was not aware going into this film that church organist was its own profession. Uh, that somebody could hypothetically make a living out of. I find that very fascinating, if it's true, of course. Yes, I mean, I always just assumed it was more of a, you know, this person goes to a church, and they're, they're also halfway decent at playing the organ, so they're going to play the organ now. And I actually looked it up, the modern salaries between fourteen and $142,000 a year, uh, with the medium being about fifty grand a year. So probably for the 1960s, I would say about fourteen grand. I would have to take your word for it. I feel like that's about the, that's a good upper medium income, especially for what we know about the Utah and Salt Lake City area. Seems like a fairly desirable uh, situation to be in, given that you would probably only be playing during church services, right? You know, maybe Sunday yeah, and Yeah, and Wednesday. only have to work once a week. I don't know. I don't know. Um... It's a, I mean, it's just all a bit suspect to me. Uh, the, the idea of a church, she's a church organist. I feel like she's one of those people you make fun of in the HGTV shows. Like, she's a church organist and her husband creates crayon colors. Their budget is $4 million. Welcome, everyone, to Deep Cuts of Horror, where church organists are considered suspicious. Please <laughs> like and subscribe. At this point, we cut to her driving on the road, presumably on her way to Utah, and it is here that we are introduced to pretty much what this movie is going forward. She's driving and suddenly the radio becomes quiet, she fidgets with the dial and nothing, nothing comes from the dial, and she looks from her passenger window and we see a man. He has uh, very pale white skin, dark eyes, and he's just smiling at her, and it startles her. And if that type of creepiness isn't something you're into, you're really only about 15 minutes into the movie, you can probably go home now. Because that, in a nutshell, is basically what this whole movie is. Things get quiet, and then suddenly this man pops out of nowhere. Yes, uh, those two sources are essentially the uh, sources from which all of the horror and all of the scares in this film are derived. And they do escalate in certain ways as the film continues, but ultimately it is, number one, this sort of dissociation from reality in which you, you cannot hear and, and maybe people can't hear you, and number two, it is this creepy, ghoulish-looking gentleman appearing in places where he should not be. 
So if that kind of thing appeals to you, then you're probably going to like this movie. And if it doesn't, you probably won't. And if it doesn't, maybe stick around because mileage varies. Um, I would argue they do it slightly better and slightly worse in different scenes. So maybe just stick around to see which one works most for you. So what did you think about the first appearance of this ghoulish gentleman? How did it work for you? I feel like it worked for me. We see him from the passenger side window of the moving vehicle. I feel like that worked for me. The effect was a little unpolished, but I have seen it done more successfully in the modern era, so I can commend this for doing that, and I don't believe I've actually seen it prior to this, at least in film. So I will commend it for that and kind of setting that up. I like the idea of it enough that when I see it polished, I was, I'm like, oh, hey, you know, that's actually really effective. But out of, out of these scenes, I feel the most effective version of this, as far as the car goes, is the next little bit we see where she sees him directly in the headlights on the road. Again, he's wearing a suit, he has a ghoulish white face, uh, dark eyes, and he's just kind of grinning at her and it causes her vehicle to veer off the side of the road. What would you say the effectiveness of this scene? So, we see, as you mentioned, we see the gentleman twice in very close succession. The first time we see him in the reflection of the car window. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the car is moving at the time. Yes. So this would indicate to Mary, if she were a rational person, that this gentleman is not real. Because he obviously cannot appear as a static image uh, following alongside the car, staring at her while the car is moving at relatively high speeds. So this, this would tip you off that he's some kind of vision or illusion or perhaps a ghost rather than mm -hmm. a physical individual. And then immediately afterward, we see him standing in the road in a more corporeal form. She, of course, swerves to miss him and goes slightly off the road. To me, the appearance of the gentleman in the window was much more effective because it had a more supernatural and otherworldly quality to it, whereas seeing him on the road just a couple seconds later, I feel like was mostly redundant. Perhaps for me it was just the light exposure, just the grainy black and white filmmaking and the exposure, the headlights on him, uh, that just kind of drastically overexposed his body in terms of color correctness. Um, perhaps that was most effective to me. But the second one just... I don't know, sort of stands out for me. And in my head, you know, the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking about the episode of The Twilight Zone called The Hitchhiker, where a, a Hitchcock blonde is just driving across the country and she keeps seeing the same Hitchhiker everywhere she goes. And in researching after this, I found out that it was actually based on the story The Hitchhiker. And I, I was a little bummed. I was a little bummed because I was like, this could, this could have been such a good spectral Hitchhiker movie. Kind of like that episode, The Twilight Zone, that was done two years before this. And to find out that it was actually based on that story, I was just kind of let down. You, you, you were know? let down by what exactly? You were let down by Carnival of Souls or by The Hitchhiker? I guess it's just the idea that the Twilight Zone episode came out two years before and uh, pulled this off, in my opinion, more successfully. Now, did it, did it create a more visually striking antagonist? I would argue yes. 
but in performance and functionality, I feel like this version is just lacking in that regard. And would you also agree that this whole movie is kind of a Franken-story? Like, it just sort of feels like two or three stories or inspirations just kind of stitched together. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, more so, I would say they're the two different sources of horror are so disparate and don't seem to be connected by any obvious plot thread that it, it kind of feels like, as you said, two different ideas were meshed together. I think that they could have worked together, but they required a little bit more context than what we see in this film. Yeah, it would it would require probably stronger writing, a more steady directorial hand. There are sometimes watching this where you can really tell the director is maybe a bit unsure about what he's doing even. I'll give him credit. I feel like in his head he had shots in mind and whenever he sets out to successfully capture a shot he can do that it's just getting from point a to point b where he, he really shows his hand in his amateurness would you agree it's very possible that i would agree i'm not entirely sure what you just said well no i was just saying i feel like the director himself being unseasoned he had ideas of shots in his head, and when he wanted to capture those shots, he absolutely could. But getting from point A to point B, all the stuff from, okay, we have this wonderful shot and this wonderful shot, getting the character from one shot to the other is where it kind of looks sloppy. I could see that being true, and I think it comes down to how you ultimately interpret the meaning or, or the overall theme of this film. And I, I imagine we'll get into that later, but there are certain ways that you can look at it where the transitions from point A to point B actually make perfect sense and help to mm -hmm. augment the overall meaning of the film. And there are other ways you could look at it where you might consider it to be a little sloppy. I'm certainly not going to make any stylistic or artistic judgments about the director. As far as I can tell, he seems to be enjoying himself quite a bit in this film. It's interesting that you would bring him up in this scene in particular because, uh, for those of you who may not know, he actually plays as this ghoulish gentleman that Mary is seeing. Uh, the director is also one of the main actors. And perhaps that might also be it to some extent. I notice right around the time where he's going to be in the scene, stuff starts looking a little bit uh, slackish. And I didn't see noted in the credits that there was a assistant director or a second unit. Uh, there was an assistant director. Uh, I, yeah, I can't pronounce the name. I believe it's Iranian, but it's something along the lines of like Reza Badi or something like that. Real quick, I didn't want to touch on it too much, but in terms of iconography, how do you feel the goal holds up in cinema? Holds up when compared to what? I would just say other horror antagonists. I would say that, at least for me, he doesn't really occupy the same role as a lot of those other characters that I mentioned. He'd... He is in some ways the driving force behind the film because he is this vision that haunts Mary, but he doesn't really have a will of his own. He doesn't go about accomplishing tasks or harassing other people. He, he's simply a presence that looms in the background. Hypothetically, he could be entirely in Mary's head, depending on how you want to interpret all of this. So I would say that I simply don't put him in the same category as a traditional horror antagonist. I'm not even sure if I would say 
that he is an antagonist. He's more of just an idea. Maybe I would put him in the same class as maybe some other psychological horror. Put him in with the man in the suit and the man in the bear suit in The Shining. Because I feel like they could be interchanged. I could definitely see that. Well, so so what? Do you, how do you think he holds up? I think in terms of just iconography, if I just saw him in a lineup, I feel like I would be very interested in that. Just seeing the pictures of him, and you can kind of tell by the post-marketing of this, seeing the picture of him is what's going to bring people in. Because just seeing him as a specter, it draws you in. And it's like, okay, what's this guy about? What it, What is this movie that's going to have this? And to its credit, a lot of psychological horror would have this guy on the cover looking as creepy as he does. And it's only utilized for one scene. Like Pazuzu in The Exorcist. They use that in the movie for, I think it's two or three split second shots. And that's all you get of him. But it's all over the marketing for that movie and it's just three shots and two of them are just blink and you miss it shots i can definitely agree that the gentleman himself looks very iconic i think it's interesting that he's played by the director because i would have absolutely believed that they cast this man specifically for how he looks the the way that they have this sort of pallid makeup with these dark sunken eyes he looks so iconic the first thing that I ever saw of this movie when I looked up the title was an image of him just standing there with this morbid-looking grin on his face and these sort of bizarre wisps of hair that he had. And it definitely looks like something you would see from sort of some sort of ghoulish underworld. Not to, uh, you know, not to make any statements about this man's appearance, but he certainly does uh, inspire fear, or at the very least, mystery. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I love... I love just the idea of him. I feel like every season of American Horror Story has its spooky figure, quote-unquote, who isn't 100% related to the story but is there and is in all the marketing like the Rubber Man, the Minotaur, the, the, the Creepy Nun, thing, things like that. And I feel like he would fit in very well, and they're kind of in the same class there. The creep factor that makes you say, okay, I kind of want more. I kind of want to see where this goes. And all of that is leading up to the very end of this scene of Mary driving along the road where after having swerved to avoid hitting this ghoul, she peers out over the water and she sees what looks to be this abandoned or perhaps dilapidated pavilion. And we're not really sure as the audience what it is, but we linger on that shot for a moment as the music plays, and it, it almost seems to be beckoning to her. And the reason that I bring this up is, of course, because the namesake of the film, the Carnival of Souls, this is ultimately what that is, this abandoned carnival pavilion. So how did you feel about our introduction to that aspect of the story? I know we lightly talked about that and how you kind of missed it on the first viewing. And I was like, no, it's there. As far as like it being a carnival, I couldn't sing it for the first time. Like I didn't really know what it was. Perhaps, you know, it's a bit of modern day where like you're just used to on the side of the highway seeing like these big factories and warehouses. And I, I, I couldn't really relate to it. And I wish they had maybe established it a little more. And I know they were using black and white film, even though there was color and that was budgetary restrictions. But I feel like they could have done more to light it 
a bit more properly so that we could get a better look at what it was because to me it just kind of looks like Jabba's palace on Tatooine or you know like I said modern day you're driving down the highway that would look part of the course if there was just a Walmart sign just right in front and I'd be like oh yeah it's a Walmart <laughs> That would have been an interesting conversation for her to have with the, the gentleman at the gas station in the next scene where, where she asks, you know, what is that, uh, that that building out over on the road? And he just says, oh, that's a Walmart. You don't want to go there. Definitely don't go there after dark. Clearly the director thought about this because he kind of gave it a history. It used to be a dance hall, which kind of comes into play later. It was a, fa it was a factory. Um, I guess, during the war. And then it was a carnival, he said. And now it's just fallen into ruin. Now, I don't know if that is actually true to real life or not. And the reason that I say that is because it might be. If I understand correctly, the director seeing this pavilion on the side of the road, this sort of dilapidated carnival-esque building, is actually what inspired him to create this film in the first place. And so, that in an episode of The Twilight Zone. Point being, in a certain sense, he is occupying the position of Mary in that real-world story that inspires Carnival of Souls. And to to touch a little bit on, on what you talked about, the presentation and the lighting, maybe this is just my experience, but I absolutely missed this the first time I watched this film. Uh, I remembered her swerving off the road to avoid the ghoul, and then in my mind it just cut immediately to the, the following scene. And I thought that that was very strange, because given the physical and symbolic importance that this carnival has to the film... I really feel like this this first witnessing of it by Mary should have been more impactful, and I felt like it wasn't. Right, they definitely buried the lead a little bit, having this carnival introduction so close to the ghoul, as we'll know him. She refers to him as the man, but officially he's referred to as the ghoul. Perhaps if they had established that before seeing the ghoul, I feel like that would have made just a bit more sense from a story perspective. And also, perhaps now that you say that it was written and directed by this gentleman, I feel like having perhaps more hands in the creation would have helped edit ideas. Because, as you said, the, him seeing the carnival is what gave him the idea for this. How many of us have just had random off-the-wall ideas while we're driving late at night and been like, oh, that's a good idea, but then when we actually sit down and flesh it out, we're like, ah. Uh. Yeah, no, this isn't this isn't going to work so much. So I feel like if he just had someone by him to just kind of edit things down, we could have something a lot more concrete and solid. Well, do you know that he didn't? I know he had another writer helping him. I, I forget his name. There was another writer helping him? Yeah, uh, John Clifford, I think is what it was. This movie is what, 78 minutes? Yeah, around there, like an hour and 17 minutes, so... I, I read somewhere that there was about 18 minutes that weren't used. I believe that, that there might be a version with those scenes available. I'm not entirely sure, but I have seen on YouTube, for example, longer cuts of the film. Something like an hour and 25 to an hour and 30 minutes long. And I have not watched them. I don't know. That might just be some weird padding. 
but it's very possible. I do know that toward the end, there was some scenes with extra ghouls that they filmed, I think it was like seven minutes extra of just ghouls doing stuff that whenever they were putting the film together, because back in the day they had to actually put film together, it got overexposed. So it was just unusable, period. And they just had to scrap it for the film. Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but there's a chase scene at the end that even when watching it felt kind of short to me, considering it was the third act climax. And that was apparently it. Apparently there was like eight more minutes of that. That just in, tragically ended up getting cut out. And then it was the film was also cut an, by another, I think, five or six minutes to allow more showings at the drive-in. Which back then, that was something that happened. You made cuts based on your distributors who were the movie theaters and drive-ins directly. So they would cut stuff just so that they could have a better turnaround. It may not work exactly the same way now, but from my understanding, it functionally works the same way. I mean, people will cut films down to what they consider to be the ideal viewing length for a particular audience. Mm. I mean, the, the world is kind of ruled by focus groups and whatnot. So the fact that it's not happening at a drive-in necessarily doesn't change anything to me. Oh, well, I mean, there, there's something to say when it functionally doesn't make sense to be longer. Like this movie necessarily could have been shorter. But purely from a business perspective of a business telling you, hey, Cut 15 minutes of this movie so we can show it four times a day instead of three times a day. Ah, I understand. We follow Mary as she goes to, um, I guess, a lodging house. Because the proprietor that we learn is Mrs. Thomas doesn't call it a boarding house since it's just her, Mary, and one other guest who we learn is Mr. John. Yes, Mr. John Linden. And what a character he will be when we meet him. As far as characters that are fleshed out, I would almost argue that our three most fleshed out characters are Mary, John, and Mrs. Thomas. I feel like for the whole movie, I know them the best. Would you agree with that, Jacob? So definitely Mary and John. No doubt about that. I, I want to take a couple seconds to see if there's anyone we might know better than Mrs. Thomas. Because even though we spend a lot of time with her, I feel like we don't learn too terribly much. She's almost on par with the minister that Mary will ultimately meet and some of the other side characters. Ultimately, I think you're, you're correct, but I would say that Mrs. Thomas is more of an honorable mention by default. Mm. Well, I mean, you think about it. The other people Mary encounters, uh, it's more of a professional sense. Uh, she sees a doctor and she sees a minister, but they both treat her. There's that professional barrier in there of her boss and a doctor. We don't really get a sense of them as a character because we're seeing them from a more professional perspective. But perhaps it's just... You know, I'm not saying that the actress who played Mrs. Thomas was a great actress, but I feel like she's one of those character actors that imparts a lot of themselves on a role and that shines through. I will give her that credit. There's some people like, say, Maggie Smith who you could just give her the dictionary and you're going to get her personality bleed through into what she's saying. I personally found Mrs. Thomas's performance to be very enjoyable. It definitely has this strange sort of robotic quality to it, 
but I, I didn't find that distracting. In fact, I found it very charming. I really enjoyed almost every scene that she was in. Well, you know, and she takes the clunky writing and kind of turns it into little quirky isms of herself. She mentioned several times this thing about baths and how she, she says it multiple times. She, quote unquote, ain't one to make a fuss about a thing like that when it comes to taking baths. <laughs> yes, unironically, the number of times that we have characters commenting on Mary's personality and her social isolation and her religious disposition is roughly equivalent to the number of times this movie talks about <laughs> baths. Baths are, for some reason, a really big deal, and Mrs. Thompson goes out of her way to let us know that she does not make a fuss about a thing like that. You can take as many baths as you want. It's just this interesting quirk. We see that she has a cloth at bathtub, so that's a big bath. Yeah. You know, I'm just playing devil's advocate, but if I had a lodging house, because I guess she couldn't get the trademark for boarding, I'd probably limit people's showers too. That's a lot of water to be wasting. Yeah, I mean, realistically, there's probably a very good functional reason that baths are a major concern. Perhaps it's hot water, perhaps it's the water bill. Uh, perhaps it's simply some kind of convenience issue, like if there did happen to be too few bathrooms in the house. That's not an issue for Miss Thomas. We are once again informed specifically that that's not an issue for Miss Thomas. Uh, but it's just, I just found it funny. It, it was an interesting thing for a movie of this type to focus on so heavily. Yes, I have in my notes that I thought Mrs. Thomas was just a bit strange. But I think that speaks more to the actress's ability just to make this writing work. And I would argue that she is one of the most successful at making this dialogue work for the setting. And I just found every scene she was in to be very enjoyable. I did as well. I would like to comment briefly once again on the transitions that we have between these scenes, though, because it could be entirely an accidental choice made by the director, just this is the way that he wanted to, to transition the scenes. But I feel that it, it adds this sort of dreamlike quality to everything. We talked about in the very beginning of the film, it begins very abruptly. And then when that scene is over, we have this immediate transition to Mary playing the organ. And then as she's driving down the road, we, we have this immediate transition to her appearing at the gas station. She talks to a gas station owner about this pavilion. And then we have another immediate transition to her being in the boarding house. It's almost like the stream of Mary's consciousness is directing the film, right? Whatever she's thinking about at the time. It, it's what happens immediately afterwards. Right. It reminds me of the narrative device used in not so much Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but uh, especially Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass, where we're kind of floating on a stream of consciousness. Alice is in a boat with a man, and then the man turns into a goat, and then the boat turns into a teacup, and now they're flowing through an ocean instead of a storm drain, and then suddenly she's in a race. Like, we have that sort of transition transition going on where things don't necessarily make logical sense but the cuts made are more of a if you're having a dream you know you get from point a to point b there's no real movement you're just there and you're talking to that individual there is an episode of doctor who the new series with the 10th doctor called silence in the library and the forest of the dead and i don't want to go on too much of a tangent here but the way that these scenes were transitioned really reminded me of one of the plot devices in those couple of episodes because there is a dreamlike simulation 
going on in this library where characters who are in the simulation will jump from point A to point B based on their stream of thought. So if you say, hey, I'm going to meet you in the park tomorrow, then all of a sudden the episode is going to cut to them being in the park tomorrow. Except that cut actually happened within the context of the real world. They thought about it, and then suddenly it happened. That is the exact same feeling that I got from Carnival of Souls, at least in the very beginning, because it feels like everything that Mary thinks about just happens. She wrecks, and then bam, she's at a garage. She asks for directions to the boarding house, and bam, she's at the boarding house. Once again, this could just be a complete accident based on the way they choose to shoot it. But I think it really adds this air of, well, I know I've said it before, but it feels like a dream. Pathos. It's like, a, it's like everything is just led by yes. pathos. And you make a good point. And, you know, I alluded to it lightly before we started the show, but I would, I would really like to see the same filmmaking style, the same narrative device used for a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I feel like none of them have, you know, and I love the series Nightmare on Elm Street, but I feel like it would behoove them to adopt this sort of pathos storytelling of perhaps not making a film from scene one to scene two, but following the stream of content consciousness making the whole movie feel like a dream i feel like that would really work especially since you can draw the conclusions here that this ghoul is kind of the same looming boogeyman figure that freddy krueger is almost caricature of yes now freddy krueger is of course a lot more active and seems to get a lot more job satisfaction but i i can certainly see how you would compare the two but their essential function they have the same essential function, um, especially in the earlier entries where he liked to kind of play cat and mouse and let them have nightmares for a while before he actually killed them. While Mary is getting settled and while she's unpacking, we see that she notices the man in the window. And it's at this point that I was just like, you know what? If I saw this man again, I would just leave. You mean leave the boarding house? I, I would just leave first and foremost. What about you? Yes, okay. Leave I, yes, the I would leave. It's not house. a boarding house. That's trademark. The bathhouse. Uh, w- once again, I will point out that there are well-known reasons that this man is obviously not real. We learn from the discussion between Mary and Mrs. Thomas that Mary's room is on the second floor. Or if not the second floor, it, at least it's not on the first floor. And yet we are seeing this ghoulish man directly outside her window at eye level, which means very obviously that he's not actually there because a human being couldn't physically be there. That indicates to me, and I believe it should indicate to Mary, that this is some type of dream or hallucination or ghost. And in that case, I don't think leaving is going to make much of a difference. I mean, she already saw him on the road to Utah. Uh, that's a lovely song, by the way. And uh, she already uh, she saw him twice there, in fact. And now she's seeing him at the boarding house. So I don't see why leaving would make a difference. I guess I can understand that. I don't know. My, my fight or flight is just a flight, regardless. But the next <laughs> day, we, well... Regardless of how much time has passed, they again they don't really get into time transitions for this, but we'll assume the next day she is at church, I guess, meeting her new boss and showing him how well she plays. And while she is playing, we don't see him full on, but we do see the shadow of the man while she's playing. 
Yes, yeah, so perhaps it's the shadow, or perhaps we just see him from a distance, but we do see him walking into the church and just kind of loitering. Quite frankly, it doesn't seem to be the case that Mary knows he's there, and I'm not even sure if he's able to see Mary from where he is either. But it's strange, too, because there are certain readings of this film where you can say that this man is all in Mary's head. But if Mary doesn't notice him when he's around, which there are several scenes where you can just see him, but Mary doesn't seem to see him, that would indicate that he operates of his own volition as well. So can you argue that this man is just all in her head? You definitely can't. And I think that's what's very interesting, because up until this point, he has appeared to be a hallucination to Mary. She sees him in her car window, somewhere that he cannot be. She sees him on the road, and then he disappears. She sees him in the lodging house window, in a place where he cannot be. He has never, to my knowledge, physically interacted with her in any way, and her viewing of him is entirely dependent on her own perception. But in this scene, we see him independently of her. We see him walking around, kind of doing his own thing. And that immediately indicates to you that his existence is independent from Mary, which is just sort of terribly confusing. Uh, and not necessarily in a bad way, because, it ex again, it, it invites you to ponder what this gentleman actually is. Right, and I feel like the fact that if he was a ghost, or if he was supposed to be some sort of evil specter, the fact that he is visibly in the church is supposed to signify to the viewer something about Mary not being safe anywhere. Yes. And this extra piece of evidence, by the way, helps us to draw further conclusions about what he might be. So we, we've kind of established that he can't just be like a normal person, like a stalker. But now we know he's not a hallucination or a vision either. Uh, he, he does exist in some sense of, of the imagination. So it's possible that he is some otherworldly entity, right? Like maybe, maybe he is a ghost or, or a specter of some kind. But, but it, he's not just in her head. He's real. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like kind of a blink and you miss it scene with, with him just being there. And then the story just kind of moves on. So she's playing the organ, which the music to me is just, it just all sounds the same. It's all very looming and spooky and there's all the pipes. I don't, I, I don't really know why growing up in the church, I don't know why we thought that I think was it's beautiful. a good idea. Like why we just picked the organ. I prefer a nice decorative piano, but I see all the knobs and the pedals and like the buttons because <laughs> she stops playing and talks to her new boss and she like has to pull a couple knobs, hit a couple levers and good Lord, what is this thing? Pulling knobs and playing nor organs. Um, I'm like, this is just like a nonsensical Susian contraption. This is something you see on Mulberry Street, not in Utah. I feel like perhaps entirely by accident it adds a sense of reverence to the instrument, though, because it's not... It's not just a thing for making music, it's almost like a place of worship in and of itself. Like, in order to have an organ of this magnitude, it's this stationary shrine. That's actually a really deep <laughs> cut. <laughs> Um, so Mary begins talking with the minister, who's her new boss, and they kind of go back and forth. He commends her on her playing, and she again asks 
questions about the carnival. So this is about the second person she's asked about the carnival. So she's kind of developed this odd obsession with the carnival from what we're told. And to a looser extent, the man. Do you think that, because I know in my head I connected the man and the carnival. Do you think that this character has at this point connected those two things? I think she might be suspicious of their connection. I don't think that she has in her head concluded that the man is related to the carnival, but I think that she has concluded that something strange is going on that she doesn't understand and that the carnival might have something to do with it. I would like to talk a little bit about the minister, though. Sure. Because I actually found this character to be very enjoyable for a couple reasons. Uh, number one, he represents the second in this uh, sequence of characters who comment on Mary's psychology. Mm -hmm. You know, once again, he's talking with her about the way that she views her position as a church organist and, and whether it's spiritual or simply uh, financial. He insinuates... Which, by the way, is kind of bold. Wouldn't you say, like, you know, you have such a controversial opinion about your job and to tell your boss, a minister, that that is your position? Yeah. I feel like even if that is your position, you do a little bit more to hide that. Which I don't believe she ever comes out and says, like she does to the factory boss, that, hey, this is just a job to me. But the minister offers to let her meet the congregation and have maybe, like, some kind of dinner or, or, or banquet of some kind, and she refuses that. She says she doesn't want it. The minister says he doesn't know what the women of the congregation are going to say, and Mary basically just says, well, if they say I play the organ well, then that's enough, right? So she, she's certainly showing to him that she possesses this apathetic disposition toward everything. And the minister, frankly, takes it fairly well. But the second reason that I love this interaction is that the two of them seem to get along. Moving ahead just a little bit, a lot of the social interaction that Mary is going to have in this movie is, at best, icy and uncomfortable, and at worst, actively creepy and repulsive. And the minister, like Mrs. Thomas, is one of the few characters that we see Mary interact with in a, in a positive and, and friendly way. It's very refreshing. I would even argue that for some reason she is more warm toward the minister. Um, she still keeps uh, Mrs. Thomas at a distance. She keeps the minister at a distance as well, but there's, she definitely lets him in a lot more than I would argue anyone else in the movie. And this may be me just kind of projecting my own personality onto it a little bit, but I feel like we live in such a fast-paced world nowadays that the idea of your boss just being like, hey, I've got a meeting. You want to come with me? And you asking, yeah, can we stop by this abandoned building that I want to look at for no obviously productive reason? And the boss is like, sure, let's do it. I, I love the idea of living in a world where that's the kind of thing that somebody is just down for. Well, I mean, when your boss only works twice a week for a couple hours <laughs> and like the only upper management is God, like, who, who's going to say no? Uh, you don't want to get any angry emails from your boss if you're a minister, I guess. No angry emails from God. As you said, they, he has a meeting. We don't see the meeting that she goes to because I, I kind of wanted to see that scene. I did note that. I kind of wanted to see the scene when she goes on the errand with him 
to meet whomever on the other side of town. I'm like, she's super awkward. I kind of want to see what this is. But no, to go along with the ebb and flow of the scene transitions, we go directly to him taking her to the carnival. Unfortunately, they have it fenced up so no one can get in. Mary wants to take a closer look, but the priest says it'd just be unseemly for someone like him to do that. And she decides that she doesn't want to press the issue with him, which I feel like is new side of her because she's very much as she's going to do things her way, which for some reason with him, she's just a bit different. Um, and from a different perspective, we see the ghoul looking at her from the window of this carnival, which again, kind of insinuates that he has a motive and identity outside of our main character because she doesn't see him at this point either yes this is the second instance i believe of us seeing the ghoul's existence independent of mary and i really like this particular shot because he doesn't seem to be actively creepy or actively pursuing her or trying to scare her or anything like that he's just kind of staring pensively out into the distance like it's almost like what would this man who's just caked in white makeup and a suit what does he do in an abandoned carnival in his free time it's it's almost like he lives there and he sees mary pull up to his house and he's just kind of casually glancing out the window at his visitor that's almost the impression that i got i i find the scene effective i feel like this is one of the last scenes we get of him that is effective in terms of just raising some sort of creep factor because after this as a character he gets closer and closer to mary and the any threat he poses is nullified by the fact that as close as he is he never really does anything to harm her i share that general uh feeling though i would say that there is at least one more scene that we will get to eventually where the ghoul is is effective and very creepy uh, so I wouldn't say that this is exactly the last time, but it is certainly one of the last times. So Mary gets home and she sees uh, Miss Thomas at the foot of the stairs and she lets her know that she's going to take one of those baths that Miss Thomas is so generous with. And Miss Thomas takes it upon herself to again restate she ain't one to make a fuss about a thing like that. Yep, Bath <laughs> baths, you can take as many baths as you want. And while Mary's taking a bath, we see just the back of a man at her door. A pseudo maybe fake out, although it's very obvious this isn't the ghoul. But we come to find out that it's the gentleman known as John, the other gentleman who lives in the house with her, and Miss Thomas. Yes, this is our first proper introduction to the character of John. So, number one, I will say before I talk about the character properly that I was a little bit faked out by this. Not in the sense that I thought John was the ghoul, but simply because I had a different image in my head of who John was going to be. Something about the way that Mrs. Thomas talked about Mr. Linden and his presence and some of the interactions she'd had with him, I kind of expected Mr. Linden to be an old man. I don't know if you... Did you share that assumption? No, in my head, right. I kind of imagined a Rock Hudson type. I figured they were going to introduce Mr. Linden. He was going to be like this strong-jawed leading man 
to be a foil for this main character of Mary. Now, what would have been really amazing is if they just kind of played off Mr. Linden being the neighbor and it turned out that Mr. Linden was the ghoul the whole time. There's a better movie. I, I could see either one of those things having a, a positive impact on the story. But the John that we actually get appears to be, what would you say, late 20s to 30s? I would say he's mid-20s to late 20s. People look different back then. And the, the, mo- the strongest impression that I got from this gentleman, and I think that most people would agree, is that he is an absolute creep. Now, I know that the social dynamic between men and women was different 60-plus years ago, but I really don't think that accounts for it. This guy is a fucking creep. Uh, The first thing that we ever see him do is peeping on Mary in her bathrobe. He, he knocks on the door, Mary thinks that it's Mrs. Thomas, so she goes to answer in her bathrobe, and it's this dude who immediately tries to, to force his way into the door, and then when she tells him to wait, he peeps at her through the crack in the door. So, those first impressions matter a lot, in real life and in media. And our first impression of this man is as a peeping Tom. He then goes on to very aggressively flirt with her and attempt to ask her out to dinner. And he is really not interested in taking no for an answer until he hears it at least three or four times. Yeah, he's, he, he, I mean, he's a bit of a creep, but I, I don't know. I found him kind of lovable. I found him kind of enjoyable. He was an enjoyable creep, kind of like um, a Joey Tribbiani in Friends. You're going to compare compare this alcoholic voyeur to joey triviani yes would you like to elaborate i will be taking no questions at this time it stands on its own i mean if you took away about if you took away 30 years i feel like joey triviani would very easily be this character the issue that i have is that he doesn't seem to have any redeeming qualities To a certain extent, I enjoy watching him simply because he reminds me of a a human embodiment of a train wreck, where I just want to see exactly how creepy and how incompetent he's going to be in his interactions with Mary. But beyond that, I find nothing redeemable or enjoyable about his character at all. In fact, we kind of consistently keep learning more and more things about him that make him look even worse. And that's impressive considering our first impression. Well, I think still, though, he operates as a very interesting foil to Mary, simply because juxtaposed against each other, she she's very detached, um, where he is very much into attaching, um, that we have a scene later where we can kind of assume that even though he runs around with kind of a sketchy crowd, he does know a lot of people in his community and operates in operates in and out of several circles is there some kind of statement about him that you're trying to make with this information well i'm just i'm just saying simply that he's a good foil to mary's antisocial anti-personability i i would i would disagree with that because while he is certainly attempting to be very social and as you somewhat uh, interestingly phrased get attached 
Uh, he's mostly, in my opinion, reinforcing the idea that Mary is right to be avoiding social interaction. Like, th this guy is not uh, espousing to her all of the enormous benefits of being a social person. He's actually kind of encouraging her to just stay locked up in her room. <laughs> But also, it does create an interesting dynamic later in the movie because he is how he is, Mary is how she is, and she's in this situation. It's kind of like your ship crashes and you find an island, but the island is just rocks. Yeah. You're safe from the water, but you're still out of the frying pan into the fire. See, I think it would have been a lot more effective if, like you said, he was this sort of handsome rock hudson type character who was maybe a little bit aggressive in his pursuit of mary but ultimately seemed to be like a decent guy who just wanted to get a know get to know her and get her out of her shell because then there, there would have been a something that the audience could actually root for and and b it would have been more of a compelling uh dichotomy where you have mary who's trying to be isolated and and icy and alone and you have this sort of more charismatic and well-meaning gentleman who is just trying to to get her out of her shell uh, I, I think that, that would have worked a lot more effectively not least uh because of the fact that likable characters are easier to root for right and i feel that with this story in particular it would have been easy to have cast a like i said a rock hudson type and then we could have had some really playful back and forth banter even if they say they want to hate each other between our two leads but and i mean we still get some playful banter but it's the most establishing thing in the story for mary's character that she does not like this man and that they have the chemistry of a nickel and a piece of wood <laughs> I wasn't going to say a match and fire because that has a chemistry. This is two completely unrelated things that do nothing when they're met together. They're hitting it off like noble gases. Yeah, and character of John, he works for me because when he talks to her, it's like he does one step forward and then two steps back. Like he'll bring her coffee, but the coffee pot is dirty and he offers alcohol. He'll offer to take her out to dinner and be nice, but then she'll say no and then he'll keep bugging and then he'll talk about how he wants to quote unquote get close to her. And I think that's just what intrigues me about this smarmy character so much is he'll take a step in the right direction and then retreat a fucking mile <laughs> it's funny because i i know exactly what you mean by that of course but i would honestly argue that he, he works in the opposite direction right he takes like one step backward which is a good thing because he needs to stay back and then he <laughs> takes like five steps forward man he's like oh my gosh she's kind of warming up to me let's get as rapey as possible so literally he takes one step backward five step forward but uh, metaphorically, he takes one step forward and two steps back. But, you know, Mary gets dressed after this interaction. She starts going downstairs and she sees the man at the foot of the stairs. In which case, she just hightails it back into her room and we hear footsteps coming up the door. We hear a knock. And I feel like this scene, for what it's worth, was kind of suspenseful, even though you knew it was a fake out. And when she answers the door, it's Miss Thomas with some sandwiches for her. And at this point, Mary tells her 
about seeing the man downstairs and Miss Thomas like, there's no man downstairs. And it actually kind of shakes Miss Thomas up a little bit. And she immediately shuts this woman down saying, there's nothing to worry about like that. Don't you get me worked up. I have hard enough time sleeping as it is. Just get in your damn bath, girl. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I have hard enough time sleeping as it is. Sleep right next to the pipes. I was very suspicious of Miss Thompson in this scene on the first viewing. Something about the way that she reacts to Mary's claim about there being an, a man out there. It's almost like Miss Thomas has a faint recognition of what she's talking about. Like maybe this has happened before or Miss Thompson herself is acquainted with the man and doesn't want to admit it. And I'm not claiming that that's actually what's going on. I don't think it is. I just wanted to say that something about the way she acts made me think that the first time I saw it. I thought that there was going to be some kind of ghost story maybe going on about someone who had died in the house or something of that nature. And it doesn't really go anywhere. See, I didn't really feel that. With Miss Thomas, I mostly just felt like she was in her own production. She was in her own movie, completely separate from this. Like, she was in Green Acres or Petticoat Junction, or even, like, a community production of The Glass Menagerie. And she just didn't know what to do with herself in this situation. But I just loved her to death. I would go to bat for this woman any day. I will say another little quirk of her acting in this scene that I really, really enjoyed is that she's constantly denying Mary's claims that there's a man out there, and yet she seems to believe her on some level, and she just has this kind of acceptance on her face of like, no, there's no man out there. Let me go out there real quick and check. And if I die, I die. And then and then she opens the door and she kind of breathes this sigh of relief and sees that there's no man out there. And it's like, huh, I guess I get to live another day. <laughs> there was just something very bizarrely brave about her behavior in this scene. Did you pick up on any of that? I did. I feel like it was the second director that directed her because she was giving an entirely different performance. It almost makes me wonder if this was one of the cases where they didn't give her a full script and they did and tell her what movie this was because she doesn't really follow the same ebb and flow that the other actors do. She is just doing her own thing and honestly I want a retooling of this where it's just Mrs. Thomas. Netflix make it happen. This is not too terribly important but I just wanted to get your opinion on one last thing regarding this scene. Uh, Miss Thomas provides Mary with coffee and then says, don't drink it if it keeps you up. Now, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know that coffee has a lot of caffeine in it, and people drink it specifically to mm -hmm. keep them awake. And I think it's very strange that Mrs. Thomas would give coffee to this woman, who appears to be hallucinating, at night, and then tells her don't drink it if it performs the function that coffee is literally intended to perform. Maybe she's just being John's wingman. They seem pretty tight. What is it she says that uh, John taught her? Uh, that must have been a real kick in the head, I think. Yeah, that must have been a real kick in the head. She learned that from Mr. Linden. That <laughs> so I feel like they, they just kind of have a little thing going on. Uh, she gets pretty women to rent the room across the hall from him, and he sleeps with them. Well, you know, she might actually be quite fond of John. I'm sure he's a little bit less enthusiastic about watching her take a generous bath and, 
And maybe if he does show, uh, show some form of comical advance toward her, that she might find it charming simply because she's an old woman and he's a young man. I was gonna say, I feel like these characters, we don't get a scene between John and Miss Thomas, but I feel John is the type of character to shamelessly flirt with Miss Thomas and it inflates oh, her ego. Agree. He makes a comment that he has a percolator of coffee in his room and... I don't think that was necessarily allowed in the boarding room. You can imply that because he so shamelessly flirts with Mrs. Thomas, she just lets it slide. And from this point, we, you know, of course, the coffee clearly keeps her awake because she's up all night looking out the window toward the carnival. And we get more shots of the carnival, which, again, I wish were lit a little better. So you knew what it was instead of just Jabba's Palace. But at least now we know it's an actual carnival. And the next morning, she is greeted by our favorite Smarmy John with the foresaid percolator of coffee. And they start talking and we get the first real interaction with these characters where, yeah, it's confirmed 100% that they have zero chemistry. And she relays again to him that it's just a business, just like anything else. And I feel like even in the 60s, that was a controversial opinion. That, to me, church is just a place of business, just like anything else. Definitely. And this is the point where John occupies the third iteration in the sequence of characters talking to Mary about her religious and social dispositions and kind of trying to get her out of her shell. This is also the scene where we learn that John is not only a voyeur, but an alcoholic. Because he's not only brought Mary coffee, he is about to spike it with some whiskey, which he does every morning to, quote, start the day right. Yeah, he's he, 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 he's an individual in and of himself. What can you do? And you can tell he's clear in the scene, he's clearly really trying to put on the charm for this woman, and she's just not having it. Uh, she barely touches the coffee and comments quite frequently that it tastes terrible and it's not sanitary. And he says, well, you should have uh, you should have taken the disinfectant. Yeah. <laughs> Ever, always drink Germex with your coffee. It makes it so much better. He he he's just a mess. I can't I can't, I can't stand him. But at the same time, that's kind of what draws me to liking him as a character. It's just he's so classically smarmy, and he thinks that he has it all together and that his shtick works so well. He he makes the claim that he would have been able to pass college if they had a class in women. Which I, I think is hilariously ironic, given his track record so far. Yeah, um, and he mentions that in school his least favorite thing was, um, I forget what it was, but exports. Yeah, principal much. products. You know, yeah, like, uh, like coffee beans from Brazil. And I think he says snake oil or something like that. I might have yeah. misheard that. I was, uh, And I was thinking, you know, there, there's more to school than just that, but... Clearly, you know, a character like John, he had different things on his mind in school. I don't know. I, I've never learned anything in school quite as useful as principal products. I'm feeling cheated. Oh, God. I, I hated world geography. Let's not even talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> uh, um, all jokes aside, and I do still find John to be very creepy, but I found this conversation between them to be kind of enjoyable. I really liked it. 10 for 10 did not start checking out until at least another 10 minutes. <laughs> And how we got there is Mary goes to a department store to buy new clothes, I guess, since she's in a new town. And she's with the sales lady to try out clothes. And I thought it was very interesting, just on a little side note, how 
the sales lady did business because nowadays department stores don't really do stuff like they did there anymore because the sales lady was offering to like take up the hem and even stuff out like nowadays if you buy a fucked up shirt from macy's you you got a fucked up shirt from macy's it is once again like i talked about with the minister there's just a, a general slowness and personability about older settings that i find so charming and wish that we got more of nowadays but while Mary is changing her clothes, she comes back out and the saleswoman just blatantly ignores her. And it's here that we get a more expounded upon scene like we got earlier with her in the car f playing with the radio. And that um, she can't hear anything. And what's more, no one can hear or apparently see her. And she even brings it up to another person at the department store besides a lady because at first she just thinks the sales lady's crazy and you thought she looked like a young Kathy Bates? No, she doesn't look like a young Kathy Bates. She just looks like Kathy Bates. Like, she she appears to be in her 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s. Uh, and then she straight up looks like Kathy Bates, even though Kathy Bates would have been 14 at the time this movie came out. It's so crazy to me. And may maybe I'm overstating how much they resemble one another, but I I straight up was like, what? That's Kathy Bates, like, 60 years ago. What 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 is this? Is she a time-traveling actress? I mean, it could just be Molly Brown. There's always that possibility, because you look at Molly Brown, Kathy Bates was perfectly cast in that role. Just saying. But I don't want to upset the Titanic fandom. So what did you think about the this dissociative episode? Because even though it, it is arguably foreshadowed in the car uh, with the radio, this is functionally the first time it happens. All right. So right now, we're pretty much entering the second act of the movie. Right now would, would have been a good time to introduce maybe some sort of plot or motive of the ghoulish man instead of introducing a new plot thread that is by all means unrelated to what's going on. So this is the part of the movie when I will admit I kind of started checking out a little bit. You st like she starts disassociating. I'm like me too. And me too. the reason is that <laughs> we're we're essentially opening up a third plot point when absolutely nothing about what has been established so far has been resolved in the slightest. We have this man that is pursuing her. We have her obsession with the carnival, and we've been watching random social interactions between her and other characters for the entirety of the movie so far, which, by the way, I think we're about at the halfway point. Mm -hmm. And yet, rather than having any amount of closure or explanation for what's been going on so far, we're all of a sudden thrust into this different scenario of her dissociating from reality. And for me, it was just a step overboard. I needed a yes. little more closure before moving on to something else. I, I'll, I'll agree to that. Like I said, we needed at least some form of closure. Or again, like if we're, this is where the story starts to seem more like a Franken story. We've stitched several things together and they don't exactly fit. I feel like this movie could have succeeded better if it was either going to follow the ghoul story or the disassociation story, but not both, and definitely not 74 minutes. Yes, and 
there's another scene toward the very end of the film where she begins to dissociate, and it's much longer, and we get to see her interacting with a wider variety of environments. And I think that that would have been much more effective if this department store scene didn't happen. I think that we should have only had this dissociative episode occur at the very end of the film. And I, I can explain more about why I think that when we get there, but I think overall this scene is just unnecessary. Yes, so we have her walking around, I guess, the square of town, trying to get people to notice her, and they don't. Finally, exhausted and distraught by the situation, she goes to the park, and suddenly she can hear birds singing. And then she goes to get a sip of water from the nearest fountain, and when she looks up, the man is there. But when she looks away and looks back, it's just a different person, not the ghoul. And in her distressed state, she runs into another gentleman who we learn is a um, doctor of sorts. This is another <laughs> very bizarre choice. Now, do you, do you want to talk about the water fountain scene or anything like that before we move on to the doctor? Because I have quite a bit to say about the doctor. Okay, well, real quick about the water fountain scene. It to me is because again in modern horror we've seen the trope done where the character sees something as one thing and then it turns out to be something else perhaps this was like one of the earliest forms of that but this in execution looks very sloppy by today's standard and in fact i would argue that this scene where they show the ghoul is the most ineffective that we see him in the whole movie in my opinion i this is another scenario like the first scene in which we see the carnival where I feel like I may have watched a, a different movie because I don't recall her ever seeing the man at the water fountain. All that I saw is this gentleman's uh, this gentleman in a suit walk up next to her. We can't see his face, and she runs away from him out of instinctive fear. Uh, I never saw the ghoul in this scene, and in fact, on my other monitor right now, I'm re-watching it as I'm speaking, and I hmm. still don't ever see the man, so... Did we maybe see different versions of the film? Uh, we watched the same cut. Maybe it was just Theater of the Mind. I know we see the shadow walk up, and the shadow looks a lot like the man, but the person that it actually is looks nothing like that shadow. Yes, uh, to, my, to my knowledge, we never see the ghoul in this scene. Okay, Theater of the Mind. That's one thing about this movie. It relies heavily on your Theater of the Mind in some places, especially when it comes to imprinting whatever you want to on the main antagonist and really on the story in general, I would say. But moving forward from this water fountain scene, this water fountain scare, this starts to follow the dream sequence logic where, oh, suddenly she runs up and there's a man who offers to help. He is some kind of doctor. And luckily his doctor's office is right across the street and he can see her now. So the next scene opens with her at the doctor's office and he has his back turned from his desk to take notes about her situation. Yes, th this is another choice that they made that I found extraordinarily weird. So I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about this scene in summary and then explain at the very end why it's weird. So Mary is on the street near this water fountain having what appears to be some kind of... Uh, hallucination or panic attack or what someone might call a hysterical episode and she runs he in... calls it a hysterical episode yes and she runs into this doctor who says he feels compelled to help her and invites her into his office which is nearby and 
this is very nice. This is very convenient. And he sits there and he listens to her. She explains her mental state. She explains the history of what's been happening. And, and he starts kind of commenting on it aggressively and, and talking to her about survivor's guilt and, and why she might be feeling this sense of isolation and detachment. And then, at the end of this conversation... We learn that he's not a psychiatrist. How do we learn that? He says it. He says, <laughs> I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> we don't ever learn what he actually is. My headcanon is that he's a fucking dentist. But it's just so weird because he acts like he's a psychiatrist or a therapist of some kind. And he goes through this entire sequence where he's kind of psychoanalyzing Mary and giving his opinion on her mental state. And then he just adds the addendum. Oh, but, but I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, so I don't, what do I know? It almost plays out like a Mel Brooks get one of his movies where they have this long talk where it's real thought out and he's like, don't listen to me, I'm the janitor, and then picks up a mop in the trash and walks out. And you know, he could have been a psychiatrist. Like, there's, I don't see how it benefits the movie to add that in, that he's not a psychiatrist. Frankly, and I mean, I... it doesn't benefit the character to not be a psychiatrist. Yeah, it, it's just such a strange choice, and... Quite frankly, I don't feel like the Doctor even serves too terribly much of a purpose in the film to begin with. No, other than we have three types of individuals that talk to Mary about her issues. We have an everyman perspective, we have a spiritual perspective, and now we have a scientific perspective. And with the scientific perspective added to this, we kind of gain the understanding, you know, someone who blatantly comes out and says, you know, maybe you just haven't processed this properly, whereas everyone else has said things along the lines of, are you sure you're not moving too quick into this? Things of that nature. Would you agree? I can certainly see how one could establish that that categorical system of John represents the everyman, the doctor represents the scientific perspective, the minister represents the religious perspective, and so forth. I'm not sure if that was intentional on behalf of the director. I think it may be more of something that people can just read into it if they choose. I would be more inclined to accept that perspective if I felt like the commentary provided by each of the characters was valid and interesting. But for the most part, I don't find that it is. I find that each one of these characters, John, the factory boss, the minister, the, the doctor, they all seem very pushy and very eager to insert their own interpretations and judgments onto Mary without really considering her own perspective. So, well, because she's pretty much a blank slate. Yeah, but I, that doesn't really justify it. Uh, it's to me, it just it feels like they're being very rude. What, then why do we have this situation where this character is having to have the same conversation? three times the movie stops what it's doing so we can have this same exact conversation three times one at the beginning one with john and then here it feels like there's intentionality to it it feels like the movie is trying to make a statement but i feel like it's lost in translation do you think part of that could be just where we were at as a society in understanding mental health i think that that is very possible there are a 
Not to try to make a grand statement about understanding mental health or anything, but just from a layman's term perspective, how how we process that, let's say. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly no expert in in the, the history and the culture of mental illness, and I'm certainly no expert in mental illness itself. I am not a psychiatrist, much like the gentleman in this movie. But I'm, um, I get the distinct impression that explorations of concepts like schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder and all that, it was probably very novel and something that storytellers were eager to stick their hands in and, and try to express to audiences their own personal take on what it would mean to experience something like this. We have a doctor who's talking about this, but at the end of the day, all this information is coming from a director who did research on it, uh, just research. And I feel like right now, when this movie was made in 62, was right about the time the everyman outside of academia would be able to actually look into and explore why the brain does what it does. And I feel like that ultimately speaks to this movie as its moniker as kind of the granddaddy of the psychological thriller. There is at some base level an understanding of psychology going on. Now, it might not be correct, it might not be the most polished form of it, but there is a tangential thing there. Do you think that it was conscious on the part of the director? Do you think that he was trying to have Mary express his personal perception of, of what the behavior of individuals with, with disorders of this nature might express? I don't know if he... I wouldn't say necessarily imposing it on a character. Like, I don't really think this character was written with this person has X, Y, and Z as a mental health issues. I think it was more this character seeing this, this stuff is happening to this character. How, how does the rational mind explain that? Because that's kind of what this movie is. How do you rationalize these things going on? That's really where the inner turmoil of this movie is operating. And that really is the crux of the movie. We're thinking, you know, it, as the audience... Uh, the characters in the movie are wondering, you know, how does her being a rational-minded person cope with the fact that her friends died and she didn't? How did she survive? How does she not remember how she survived? Why, why is she not taking more steps to guard herself against this man? Why is she fixated on this carnival? Um, and just getting all these different perspectives to try to make sense of that with the information that we had at the time. As we go through from the psychiatrist's office... He's not a psychiatrist. He, he's just a doctor. He's just a doctor, not a psychiatrist. The only thing she really seems to take from this conversation is that she's going to go to the carnival alone by herself. Which I think is odd, too, because we also notice that every time someone gives her advice, she just doubles down on what she feels she needs to do instead of following any kind of advice. So she's projecting something onto this carnival. I feel like that's the draw here. She's projecting something onto this carnival. Well, compared to a lot of the choices that characters in this film have made, her decision to go and confront the carnival, I think, is a very mature and healthy one. She she has clearly attached some great uh, otherworldly significance to it, and being able to walk through it and, and see what it looks like on the inside, 
hypothetically would help her uh, in, in dealing with the feelings that she's experiencing. And if she had like an actual therapist or psychiatrist, he'd probably tell her that. But no, he's... Which I, I did get the impression that he wanted her to go to the carnival. He just, he, I mean, he, he specifically said that he wouldn't be able to accompany her because he was busy at the moment. Is he like he can just pick strangers up off the street and have a <laughs> mean, meaningful conversation about their psyche and their near-death experiences and disassociativeness? Like something that takes months to years to work through in therapy? And he was like... I'm going to take a crack at this on my 30-minute lunch. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't take that long if you don't know what you're doing, right? I mean, fa failing is, is actually a pretty straightforward process. I mean, I feel like at this time they were still using leeches, so... <laughs> he was probably like, have you thought about letting your blood? Thought about letting my blood do what? <laughs> <laughs> so she goes to this carnival, and something that I found really interesting in it as she's going through the boardwalk is this movie does a good job at making carnivals creepy without what we understand now, where most times if you're going to have a creepy circus or creepy carnival, it mostly just translates to having creepy clowns, and those clowns are going to do the legwork for the creepiness of the carnival. Oh, I want. 100% agree. Just like you said, when you look at the modern interpretation of what it means to have a creepy carnival, it's all about fun house music and creepy clowns and maybe throw some zombies in there. And this predates all of that. This is having a carnival be creepy for ways that it's difficult to put into words. Uh, for me personally, I just find that there's something very fascinating and almost mesmerizing about a place that used to be populated and bright and lively and now it's abandoned and, and dilapidated and you know this could have this could have just as easily been a mall or some kind of big shopping center or even a movie theater you know the fact that it's a carnival is almost not necessarily the point but is rather in service to the point, which is that this is a place of life and happiness that is now dead and you have these pictures and posters of happy faces and stuff but it's chipped it's cracked it's falling apart it's artificially happy speaking of posters and, and and images on the wall i wanted to ask you something there's a scene where mary is wandering through the ruins of this carnival and she pauses and the camera lingers on this for a moment and in the background you can see an image of a woman i think with a beach ball or something like yes, that yes uh salt lake tanning or something Salt yeah, like sunbathing. Or, or, or bathing, sun, sunbathing, I think it's sunbathing, and this woman looks exactly like Mary. Yes, um, you brought that up to me and showed it to me. I didn't think much of it. I mean, I, I, I clocked that the camera kind of stayed on it, but it did look intentional. Almost reminded me of the end of The Shining, where we see the main character of Jack Torrance in the uh, Overlook ballroom. It's almost like she's supposed to be there. That was exactly the Im impression that I got. It was like she belonged here, right? The or this is a world that she has built. That's that's possible too. But in either case, like her destiny at this carnival kind of predates the events that are happening now, right? She was meant to be here. So there is definitely clear thought put into this movie. Um, and maybe looking at it from the lens of a straight-up horror movie isn't the way to go, but looking at it as a psychological thriller 
might be more apropos, especially since, you know, as far as psychological thrillers go, um, that term didn't really come into the popular lexicon until films like Silence of the Lambs, which only gained its popularity as a psychological thriller because it won an Oscar and the Oscars did not want to say that a horror movie won an Oscar. So they said, nope, psychological thriller. That's exactly what they said about The Exorcist 2 and it won its award for special effects, I think. Uh, the Exorcist, I would definitely call a horror movie, but Silence of the Lambs to me, thriller. I think psychological thriller is actually a lot more appropriate. You know, I would too. I mean, you, you can definitely say that the other Hannibal movies are straight up horror because that's kind of the camp they fall into. But in terms of all the procedural stuff, it's a lot more psychological than straight up horror. Now, there are horror elements, yes. And if you had to put it in one camp, I'd still put it in the horror camp if we're just like putting it into the base camps of like horror, drama, comedy, sci-fi, musical, whatever. It doesn't really fit in anywhere else except horror. But I mean, that's that's begging the question, right? You're creating those categories and then saying, here's where I would put it, right? If the psychological thriller category exists, I would put it in that category. I mean, psychological thriller is a subset of horror. But just real quick to close on the state of the carnival, it takes a lot to make a carnival creepy for me, and it making it look intentionally creepy robs it of its creepiness. And this movie does a great job at making it scary for the reasons a place like this is supposed to be scary, instead of putting pictures of intentionally scary clowns and intentionally grotesque things in there like uh, freak show posters and whatnot. Yeah, there, there are certain emotions in the human experience that are difficult to describe, but they really do happen. Like, if you go out in the real world and explore an abandoned building like this, you will have this sense of history and loneliness that no amount of spider webs and creepy posters can ever convey, right? This is, this is a genuine, true feeling like in on a human emotional level that you can experience in the real world it's not just cheap thrills mm -hmm. it's kind of the difference between the new yorker comic and telling a fart joke both are fu <laughs> both are funny but one has a lot of thought behind it and one is funny but also very cheap now this isn't to say i don't like fart jokes i love a good fart joke and a fart gag, mind you. This movie probably could have done with a couple. I feel like Miss Thomas would be a good character. If you want to edit that into a scene, let me know. Send me the link. You know, I, I feel like there is actually one joke in this film that approaches the level of cheapness of a fart joke. And it did kind of get me. It's back whenever Mrs. Thompson says, don't drink the coffee, it's going to keep you up. And Mary says, no, coffee doesn't keep me up. And we just immediately cut to her with her eyes frozen open. They look like plastic <laughs> as she stares out the window. Like, it, it was cut exactly like you would expect some kind of sitcom to cut <laughs> on a joke like that. Yeah, if there was just a laugh track. Yeah. But getting back to the carnival, there's one other aspect of this that we haven't touched on this, and that is another depiction of the ghoul. 
And this time he is submerged in water, and you can see this sort of cakey makeup almost drifting off of him. And it, it's it's a very unique scene of the ghoul when compared to the others. What did you think of it? Well, I mean, it's... Okay, um, I rescind my original statement. I feel like this was probably the most effective time we see the ghoul and the main character Mary does not notice it because she's just looking out over the pier and she just throws a pebble into the water and we see him but she doesn't now the whole time she's been walking around the circus well the carnival strange things have been happening not like super out of the ordinary but some metal bins and an obstacle course cling together when no one's there a mat flies down the uh, metal slide without being touched. Why is that even up there? Why did it choose to fall right then? So it's almost like her presence is making this place more alive, like it's been waiting for her in itself. The scene where the ghoul is in the water and he just has his cake makeup dripping off of him really works for me because you think about it in that salt water. You think about how corrosive that salt water is. And he truly looks like he's a body that's been there. When he's dry, you don't really know what you're looking at. It's just a man with a bunch of makeup. But this gives him more the sense that it's he's just caked in dead skin and is now dry. And that just really worked for me as a scene. And I think it also helps that whenever we're in the carnival, all the shots are done like they're a point of view perspective almost. We have shots that are low angles and high angles. It would be really easy just to track shot follow her around as she moves. But we get all these strange Dutch angles as if people are watching her move around this giant abandoned dead space. What do you think of that? So I, I'm not really too terribly familiar with the technical terms of different angles and methods of filming. It's just never really something that I paid too much attention to but i can certainly agree that something about the way that it was shot added to mm-hmm. i'm not going to say a sense of unease i think ironically i found the carnival scene to be one of the most peaceful scenes in this movie but it it added to yes you felt the emptiness that's an excellent way of putting it but you felt the emptiness yes that um and for this movie, they do a lot of stylistic shots, and mileage varies on whether or not they work or not. But when she's moving about the carnival, they do a lot of faraway shots, and you really feel the emptiness of this place she's in. And they ADR some echoes of her footsteps in as well. That just really helps encapsulate you in this space. And even though it's so empty, it almost feels claustrophobic it's a big empty space but it at the same time feels like something is just crouching in on this person something that you can't necessarily see yes it's not something tangible but it's there and something as simple as those mats going down the slide or the bins clanging show that there is some intention in this place that has a vested interest in her I would say that it arguably serves almost the same function as the traditional haunted mansion, right? It's this big space that hypothetically should have all of this room, and yet there's something about it that feels to impress inward upon From you. this scene here at the circus, 
we move back to the lodging house where our main character is again confronted by John. And John, not one to be able to take a hint, somehow edges her into letting him pick her up after work, after she has her rehearsal at the church. Yep, they agree to a date. I mean, I get where she's at in this part of the story. You know, she doesn't want to be alone. She doesn't want to see that man. I guess her visit to the carnival, she didn't get the kind of closure that she wanted, which I'm not even sure really, as far as her motivations, what she was looking for up there. I'm not terribly sure either, because the way that I personally felt during the exploration of the carnival, that would have given me some closure. Like, that, it honestly felt kind of peaceful to me. So she goes to work, and we see she's playing a very loud, organic tune. And I don't know if she just knows how to play one song or multiples, but they all just sound the same. But apparently she begins to find herself in a trance, like state where she's just playing, and the music uh, shifts itself to more of a carnival-esque tune. And I don't know if she's... I tried to figure out, is she actually playing the organ? But there's so many buttons and levers and pulleys and keyboards that I couldn't really tell if she was playing. But her hands do like this weird round on the thing that looked kind of ridiculous to me. (laughs) But I haven't ever really um, played the organ or seen it professionally done, so I don't know if it was real. What were your thoughts on this scene? I absolutely love this scene. I can imagine how some people might find the organ music, which, by the way, can, constitutes like the entire score of this film, to be oppressive or perhaps irritating, but personally, I loved it. Uh, I think that it's very haunting. The almost seamless transition from the church hymns into this sort of creepy carnival music I found very uh, it worked very effectively. But what I loved the most about this scene is this dream sequence that Mary has. As she's playing the organ and the music gets creepier and creepier, she almost goes into a trance, and she starts to see visions of a lot of different ghouls, not just the man that's been following her, but like an entire community of ghouls inhabiting this carnival, and they're dancing together. And the way... At a very rapid speed as well. The way that they're dancing has been sped up in the film to have this this very uncanny and almost mechanical quality to it. And it's, it's one of those scenes where if you're the kind of person who tends to have dreams about things that you've watched the night before, this is probably going to make it into your dreams. Just There's something oh, yes. about the way that they're spinning and dancing in this bizarre, artificial, sped-up fashion that is genuinely unsettling, and I really love it. And the fact that it is set against this, this organ music that Mary is playing just makes it all the more effective. And it, it's one of the few, I will add this t- to, to the end here. It's one of the few scenes of the carnival and the ghouls that we can be nearly 100% certain is in fact happening in Mary's head. And something about that makes it even more effective to me because it shows the effect that it's been having on her. Yes, and we actually see what is going on in her head and she's like consumed by this thing. And that brings me to another part, the music in this movie. Of, to my knowledge, it is almost 100% organ music, I guess, to coincide with the main character playing the organ. But it is very prevalent throughout the film, and they have 
it has an eeriness about it whenever it's utilized, and it's almost utilized throughout the whole thing. Do you have any notes on the music? Not apart from what I just talked about. I, I, I don't know. I just liked it. And I feel like you, as far as like creepy music goes, you don't really get organ music anymore. Like, we're all about the chung-chung violins now. Yeah, it it used to be the case that the organ was really heavily associated with things like vampires and churches and... So it's went into cliched schlock. Yeah, and you're right. Nowadays, nowadays. it's more about, like, deep percussion and screeching violins and, and things of that nature. And I feel like the organ is nowadays underutilized. In small doses, it's still a very useful tool because I it definitely helps enrich this movie, especially during some of the creepier segments. I mean, I, I get where people get that it's uh, schlocky and hokey, but in this movie it actually makes sense to use it since our main character is an organist. And the fact that she does play an organ for a living, it's almost our only insight into like what goes on in her head. It's our only attachment to her as a person. I guess now that you mention it, I do have one more thing to comment on regarding the music. The fact that it is organ music that is similar to the music that Mary is playing, and the fact that a large amount of this movie revolves around the fact that Mary is an organist, it kind of begs the question as to what the source of the music is, right? We're so used mm -hmm. to just assuming that soundtracks will be put to film, right? That we're going to be watching a film and there's going to be music playing in the background and we know intuitively that that music is not actually a part of the film. I think in this case there's a little bit of ambiguity. Is it just part of the media product or is Mary actually hearing this music inside her head? Is this the music that Mary is physically playing? I think there's a lot of questions about it that you can ask yourself and the answer is not necessarily clear. Okay, so an interesting bit about this movie, there is no music until the crash happens in the beginning. And then at the end of the movie, the music stops. I can definitely see how someone could ascribe significance to that. And once again, I think that'll be something we talk about toward the end of our discussion, but that makes a lot of sense, thinking back on it. And it also speaks to how unnatural the beginning of the movie feels because most movies when they start we have some sort of music under the whole thing to kind of build up the mood of whatever we're seeing but we don't have that again the movie just starts and there's no music or anything we're not really sure what to feel about what we're gonna see um and we only get music after the car hits the water and has gone under that's when the music starts. So one could say that this music is a representation of Mary herself and what she's going through. Well, we definitely need to talk about what happens after this scene, though. Because after Mary has this sort of trance-like episode where she plays the creepy music and she witnesses these dancing ghouls, the minister comes in to the church and scolds Mary for playing what he considers to be heretical or sacrilegious music. He claims that no one who would produce that music on, on hallowed ground should be a church organist and essentially fires her on the spot. I mean, I just thought it was funny because I, it's carnival music. I get it's unseemly for in a church, but is it fire worthy? I 
feel like that was definitely an overreaction on the part of the minister. Uh, especially since she doesn't seem to be playing for the congregation. She seems to just be practicing in her free time. Honestly, could have just been a conversation like, hey, you know, this is a church setting. We're a very serious congregation here. We need to keep to non-secular music and maybe not creepy damn circus music. <laughs> I like the implication that maybe there's something so haunting and so disturbing about the music that she's playing that it would unnerve the minister on a spiritual level. I don't think that that is possible to convey auditorily. I think that's something that has to be reserved for, say, uh, written literature. But if that were the case, then I could understand him firing her. But as it stands, she was just playing some organ music, and he didn't like it. So I don't really think that works very well, unfortunately. Yeah, and he says that she has no soul. It, it's something that you might expect to see in a Lovecraft story, right? Like music that is so haunting right. and so otherworldly and so disturbing that it, it makes you go crazy or something like that. But Well, I mean, it is otherworldly. It's ADR. <laughs> Immediately after getting fired, we watch Mary walking out of the church, and John is there to pick her up for their date. And here is another... I think, strange choice that the movie makes, because we, we cut from this scene of John picking her up, which in some ways can be viewed as triumphant, because Mary is finally engaging in social behavior, and John has finally made progress mm -hmm. toward a functioning relationship with her, but we immediately cut to them sitting at what I believe is a bar, and they are having a horrible time. Mary seems... You can just tell by the body language. Oh, she is yeah. upright and pricked, and he is... He, he seems like he's already had several drinks at this point, and everybody's dancing around having a good time, and he's just kind of tethered to this person who just doesn't want to have a good time and hasn't taken more than, like, a sip of the beer that he bought for her. It definitely gives you, like, awkward high school prom vibes where you invited someone that you thought was pretty, but you have right. no chemistry with one another, and you just kind of sit there awkwardly. And it takes just a couple seconds from the cut to from John picking her up for him to start complaining about Mary. Like, the next words out of his mouth are complaining about how she's not interested in dancing or drinking or anything like that. And it just immediately devolves into this awkward argument where John is clearly not interested in Mary as a person and just wants to get in her pants. Mary is clearly not interested in John as a person and he, she's just using him because she doesn't want to be alone. I mean, these are just two terrible people and they have no chemistry. Correct. You couldn't agree more with that statement. John's very lively and she's just absolutely not having the whole day. But at the end of the day, she's getting what she wants. But he's upset because he's not getting what he wants, right? She's she's getting this interaction and this company that she needs. Not that she necessarily prefers the company that she has, but she's just glad to have someone. But he's upset because he's not getting what he wants. And she knows that. And you can kind of tell in their conversation that she kind of goats him a little. Into like, not necessarily leading him on, but just giving him enough to string him along. Yes, and, and I mean, she lied about it and that's something that frustrates me john he makes a statement you want to be with me or do you just want to be with literally anybody and she says very convincingly and aggressively i want to be with you even though she obviously doesn't that really bothered me because that's just a terribly unethical thing to do at this point she probably thinks she's going crazy so it, the time it's going to take her to yeah. establish 
another connection to a person. Like, the only reason she has John is because John is like the cough that won't go away. She can't, she can't get rid of him even if she tried. And she's tried. So, regardless of how things turn out, he's gonna be there for her. Um, they, I guess, aren't having a good time, so they decide that they're gonna go home. And back at the boarding house, Mary has John in her room. He's trying to instigate a tender moment and they start kissing. But to Mary's horror, she looks in the mirror and sees that it's the man in the mirror. And she's asking him to change his ways. I just love that pun. This is where the encounters with the ghoul go from being haunting and mysterious to having this sort of Tim Curry Pennywise vibe of kiss me fat boy and I think <laughs> that it really just starts to go downhill from here. I was just it's so funny you said that because I was thinking about that same scene when I watched it and obviously spooked uh, John finally gets the hint that she is a few fries short of the Happy Meal let's say, a little bit um, crazy seeing things that um, he can't see. So he leaves her, and this kind of sends her into a bit of an overdrive, doubling down on her fears. And according to Miss Thomas, the next day she is rearranging furniture all night to barricade herself in the room. How do you take that? Her reaction? Mm -hmm. I think it's strange. She goes from wanting people out of necessity to coming to terms with now she doesn't need anyone and she's going to have to take agency for herself. Yeah, it's a complete 180. The, the entire mm -hmm. reason that she agrees to go on the date with John is because she doesn't want to be alone. And yet she then immediately concludes that, no, she really needs to be alone, even though it's been shown again and again and again that this man is going to continue to pursue her, pursue her no matter what. I, if it were me, I would probably double down on wanting to be with pe other people. And I certainly right. wouldn't be barricading myself in my room, because once again, it's been established over and over again that this man does, is not a physical presence. He He defies gravity, he defies motion, and he seems to be able to appear wherever he wants. So it's, again, it's kind of like grabbing a baseball bat to fight a ghost, you know? So the next morning, she has made the decision that she is going to leave. She doesn't even care that uh, she isn't going to get the rest of her week back. So all these events have taken place in just under a week. And Miss Thomas is there. And here was a strange scene. The doctor that we talked about earlier, he is also at the house to check up on her. And they have this whole conversation in the drawing room about how strange she is. I just thought that was weird. What did you find strange about it? The fact that the doctor was there. And not talking to her about it, but talking to her landlady. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. That is very strange. I mean, not only the fact that he's there in the first place. This guy who's not a psychiatrist and found you having a hysterical fit on the side of the road is concerned enough about your well-being to show up unannounced at your place of residence. How does he even know yeah. she lives there, by the way? It's one of those things I really wish you would have told me you're not a psychiatrist before I gave out my information. <laughs> now, discussing her mental state with the landlady, 
While I'm sure would violate all kinds of HIPAA laws, hypothetically, I mean, there might be an exception for the fact that he's not a doctor, uh, or not a psychiatrist at least, <laughs> but it does make sense. I mean, you uh, you would probably want to know what was going on with the crazy lady who's barricading herself inside your house, right? right? That's something that you should concern yourself with. So I don't really blame him for talking to Mrs. Thomas about it. Right. So from here, Mary has decided the only way to avoid all this is to GTFO, get the fuck out. But she notices on the road that her car is making a strange noise. So she pulls it back into the gas station slash garage that she came into town and visited. And he says it's probably the transmission. And this is probably what I consider to be the weakest point in the movie just for me so he takes the vehicle puts it on a hydraulic and raises it in the air she makes it very clear she does not want to get out of the vehicle and it's from there he gets distracted by someone at the gas pump and leaves her on the hydraulic and we see the shadow of the ghoul come in and the vehicle starts to lower somehow she escapes that and starts running through town and it's in that she learns that she is in another state where she is pretty much lost to the world she's invisible and can't be seen by other people or heard so she's going around town and she has a really good idea to take a bus you know if the car is broken take a bus so she has very well established that she is gone she's getting out of here and in her state where she can't hear anything she hears an announcement that is 80 yard and is very ominous looking back on it that a certain bus is leaving town so she figures since no one can see her no one can do anything she'll just get on that bus but when she goes to get on that bus it is full of other ghouls which i believe this is the first time we see other ghouls am i right no we see other ghouls dancing in at the dance yeah yeah, yeah. um but we also hear their ominous like laughing which in ADR was actually kind of creepy for me, just as a separate track. Not that the ghouls themselves were very effective, because I think they just got caught lightning in a bottle with Herc Harvey. They definitely had lightning in a bottle with Herc Harvey. That man looks creepy. But I found the other ghouls to be effective as well, especially since they were used so sparingly. It's, it's one of those things where it confirms for you that this is in some sense a lifestyle. It's not just one guy walking around following you. There's an entire group of these people. And that indicates that at some level there is a system in place here. Maybe this is part of the afterlife, or maybe this is part of another dimension. Who knows? But it's more than just a single phenomenon. It sounds like the Goop Foundation. She runs around town, and I think she also visits a train station as well. But they've already locked up the doors to the train so she can't get on a train. That scene was kind of effective for me as well. I feel like if you wanted to end the movie here, that would have worked if you had like the ghouls chasing her and then people who can't see her like lock the doors and she can't get out of this gate. I feel like that would have been very effective for me. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think that that's definitely a way that the movie could have been ended that would have worked, especially since it would be specifically because of her dissociation that she mm-hmm. was trapped in this realm with the ghouls. Yeah, it would tie in more. 
especially since we've also established that you don't have to be in this disassociative state to experience the ghouls. At the same time, I think there is something powerful about the fact that the film ultimately ends in the carnival, at least Mary's story ends in the carnival. And given that that is the namesake of the entire film, I feel like that's important enough to need to include. So she goes to the park where she was before, where she heard the birds. And, you know, finally she hears the birds again. I think it's the exact same audio that we had earlier of said birds. And she decides to visit the psychiatrist's office. Well, not psychiatrist's office, the doctor's office, excuse me recounting this story and his back is turned to to her as he's taking notes like he did before but when he turns around we see it's the ghoul and it's a big gotcha moment and then we learn that the events from her being on the getting on the hydraulic to now has all been a dream so she plead so i guess i'm not really sure what happened here i guess she pleaded with the um, guy at the garage and he got her down and then her car just starts working fine again because you didn't hear any more sounds out of it so I don't know what was going on with it we're we're now in act three and she goes to the carnival because I guess this is where she's drawn this is where it all has to end what are your thoughts on where we are right at the start of act three just to comment briefly on the last dissociative episode I would once again like to make it known that I think this would have worked so much better if we didn't Mm -hmm. have the first one in the the clothing store. Because if this was all novel, then it would have been so much more creepy and the stakes would have escalated much further than they had for all of the film prior to it. The fact that this already happened once at the clothing store means that, like you said, it it kind of feels weak. Now, going into Act 3, which it's... I think funny to call it Act 3 because it's probably, what, like five minutes long, maybe? It's mostly just one long sequence of Mary at the carnival running from ghouls who are pursuing her a lot more relentlessly and a lot more actively than they have for any point in the film prior. And we we have a lot of repeated gotcha moments, especially with the head ghoul who emerges from behind bushes and rubble and all of that. Overall... In terms of fear, I don't think that it's terribly effective, but it does serve as a nice climax to have them interacting with her so directly, especially since at the end we see that she collapses on the beach, is in some sense overwhelmed by the ghouls, and that's the last we ever see of her. And then we have her whenever she walks into the carnival in like this trance-like state again, and she see, I think she sees herself dancing with the rest of the carnival ghouls, and in particular the uh, main ghoul that we've seen through the whole movie. Yes, I can't believe I forgot to mention that. It's a, it's that, that is a very powerful and creepy visual, Mary seeing herself in ghoul form dancing with the man. What did you think about it? Um, she has a very haunting presence when she's in the ghoul makeup. It juxtaposes very nicely to the main ghoul. If I saw both of them on the road, I would just shit my pants. (laughs) It's just so stark and haunting. It's the moment that she breaks that trance that she screams and they start chasing after her. And it's like everything gets quiet and all we can hear is just the little giggles and laughter from these ghouls as they playfully chase her and 
as you said, they chase her down to the beach and hands go over the camera and that's it until the next day. Our little epilogue for the movie is, stop me if you heard this one, a cop, the minister, and the doctor are on the beach. And they don't explain why the cop, the minister, <laughs> and doctor are together or how they got together. It's just a gathering of all the main characters, basically. Yeah, yeah. One of the thoughts I had was this would make a terrific, like, avant-garde stage production. Because you do have this scene at the end where these side characters that the main characters interacted with, for no real reason, come together to deduce what's going on. Kind of like the end of The Wizard of Oz. I would really like to see a scene that connects the priest and the doctor. Just because there's just too much happenstance there between them knowing each other. I can agree with that. I don't think the format of the film allows for it, though. We are following Mary's perspective 100% of the time, up until the very end when she disappears. And so allowing for interaction between the minister and the, the doctor, which I think would be most powerful if Mary weren't involved, wouldn't really fit into the structure. And it's also worth noting that this whole scene also doesn't have music. Throughout the whole movie, there is an underlying score of organ music, and even at some points it's quite annoying. But in the beginning and in this moment, there is no organ music. Once they follow the tracks, they follow it to an end, and then they just stop, and Mary's nowhere to be found. Then it cuts back to our opening scene in Kansas, where they are still trying to dredge the lake, probably about a week later, and they find the car, and Mary is in the car with her friends, and then it's revealed that she died in the accident initially. Yes, here we have the, the big twist. Now, you can interpret that literally, or you can interpret that ironically, but either way, this is the big twist. And then we are let out of the movie theater by Soft Theremin. Yes. So what did you think about the twist that Mary was still in the river the entire time? It doesn't necessarily make sense, particularly because we have like living people who have seen her. And if this is all just like a thing that went through her head before she died, there could have been more tie-ins to the accident. I get what they were trying to accomplish, but they just didn't. So I firstly, I agree with you that it does not make sense. And I think it's funny that it doesn't make sense because at the same time, you can see this twist coming a mile away. Like, if you're sort of halfway attentive to the movie, this basically comes as obvious. But, but what isn't obvious is how you ought to interpret it, right? You talked about how maybe this was all happening in the moments before Mary died, right? Is that You said something along those lines. Yes. And yet... If it were some kind of hallucination or her life flashing before her eyes, how on earth do we have this scene of the policeman and the doctor and the minister on the shores uh, next to the carnival investigating Mary's disappearance, right? Why would Mary be hallucinating people looking for herself? That's such a very strange thing to do. And you can easily interpret that anything going on without music is what's happening in the real world. And everything else is inside Mary's head and from Mary's perspective. And yet, she physically interacts with it. Like, all of this stuff clearly did happen. Otherwise, the doctor and the minister wouldn't be there. So this leads you to think about what 
is she throughout the movie? Keeping in mind that our modern idea of a zombie and living spirits wasn't as confirmed as it was in 1962, our idea of the modern zombie being that of uh, George A. Romero's in Night of the Living Dead wouldn't come out for another five to seven years. Prior to that, the definition of a zombie was just a body without a soul, so carnival of souls. You could argue that what we were seeing was her, was her spirit or her soul uh, interacting with these people, and she was just joining the carnival of souls. What's strange about that interpretation is that it's almost backward. If, if you want to interpret it as Mary being a body without a soul, then why is her physical body still in the river? If her physical body were still in the river, you'd think that it would be her soul that was lingering on, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess she would have to be just the soul or the spirit. And then that makes the entire co attempted commentary on Mary being soulless extremely ironic because she's actually a hundred percent soul or maybe it's just the fact that she was detached from her body and soul so it couldn't be one i don't know <laughs> i don't know and the whole ending falls apart i know it plays on let's see here there was this really influential horror writer i can't think of it off the top of my head but he had a story during the civil war a general was being hanged to death off of a bridge and the whole story is basically the rope, when they hang him, breaks and he falls into the river. And then you have like five pages of him struggling through the water, through the woods, and trying to survive to make it home to his family. And as soon as he gets to his family, it cuts back to the bridge and his neck snaps. I believe you're referring to an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, right? I don't remember yes. the name of the author. It, it, it has it's some strange name. Like, I don't know. A very old-timey author name. And yeah, this does follow that, that, I guess, what you call it, schema? Fairly closely, the idea that this is sort of all happening yeah. post-death or in the moments before death. So, basically, like we said, this is a Franken story of about three, two, three or four ideas, and it's hastily stitched together, and there are a lot of strings in this stitch that you can tug on and pull the whole thing apart. If you wanted to sum up into, like, just a yes or no statement, do you think that the ending works? What would you say? Narratively, I would say yes, it works. But purely narratively. What do you mean by narratively? Like, so you mean that it makes, a, like, a good story or it makes a coherent story? I mean, like, just the narrative form that we have, it works. In terms of how the scenes transition and stuff, the whole thing being some sort of a dream, that's what works. So in just basic form okay. and follow through, it works. About as well as using a uh, steamroller to iron your clothes. Does it do it? Yes. Does it leave a trail of destruction behind that you can't ignore? Also yes. Do you think your opinion on this movie is hindered by what we know today and how the psychological horror genre has grown and improved upon these techniques? Only to the extent that I have the benefit of 60 years of cinema that didn't exist when this film came out. I don't think there's anything about the, the zeitgeist of the horror genre or of storytelling in general that has 
caused me to interpret this film in a different way. It's simply the case that I'm watching it over half a century after it came out. And so my expectations for what storytelling and films are is completely different by an entire generation. But do you think that um, you would consider it successful in its endeavor as a product of its time compared, say, to other compared to its peers you pro i mean you probably haven't seen a lot of its peers but comparatively does this like pique an interest for stuff of the time kind of exploring where that is i can't answer that question i i would have to have g grown up in that time period and watched it in that time period to have to answer that question or i would have to be intimately familiar with a lot of the pieces that came out around it and i'm not i i will say that for what it is, which is essentially an elongated Twilight Zone episode, I do think that it excites the imagination. I think that it doesn't make a bit of narrative sense. The characters are not particularly likable, but there's something about it that just has this deeply mysterious atmosphere that makes you imagine what sorts of concepts and mysteries are playing in the shadows and it lets you it's almost like you mentioned the blank canvas effect where you can impose whatever you want onto it and mm -hmm. i think that's probably why it has been an inspiration for a lot of directors going forward not because this is itself a good film but just because it invites you to think for yourself and wonder about these sort of higher mysteries. If you can say that Alice in Wonderland feels like a whimsical daydream, this definitely feels like a hazy nightmare. And the more time that passes, the more that feels appropriate. And it, it shouldn't be understated how powerful that ability to the ex excite the imagination is. I mean, what we have here essentially is... A guy saw this abandoned carnival pavilion and thought it was creepy and mysterious and wanted to make a film out of it. I mentioned Lovecraft a little bit earlier that almost the exact same thing happens with the, the plateau of Lang. And there's this particular artist whose name escapes me who paints all of these uh, landscapes of Antarctica. And there's nothing particularly creepy about them, but something in those paintings excited Lovecraft's imagination and inspired not only at the Mountains of Madness, but a lot of the different works within his uh, own sphere. So even if something itself doesn't contain much meaning, it can have value in its ability to inspire other people. And I think that's that's what this film is more than anything else. I will say this. I've had some time to let this movie marinate from the time of this recording. I can say that certain images and the ghoul itself has stuck with me a lot more than a good bit of modern horror. Namely, I can, I would probably liken it to a movie like The Nun. I can't tell you a damn thing that happened in that movie, but I remember the bad guy. And I feel like I'm going to have probably a similar opinion to this movie. I feel like I might remember the plot a little bit better just because it's so hazy and irrelevant in and of itself that it just helps build up the ghoul. Would, would you agree with that in terms of stay power? In terms of the iconic nature of this this creepy looking ghoul with his cakey makeup and sunken eyes and creepy ass grin 
that imagery will certainly stay with me. But it's it's more so in spite right. of the narrative structure and the plot of the film than because of it. It's entirely based on the creepy aesthetic. I honestly feel like you are 100% here for uh, the ghoul, and that that that's what you're getting from this. That That's what you get from this movie. Everything else is just set dressing. And it's a pity that they didn't make this ghoul more of an antagonistic figure or give him more to do other than just look and smirk yeah (laughs) and he really does transition like we said from being this ominous figure in the distance filling you with fear and exciting your imagination to being like a freddy krueger slash tim curry pennywise goofy villain toward the very end right especially when he turns around in the office chair and he just has this crazy ass smile on his face let's say this she goes into the carnival and like she opens the doors and she sees the um, ghoul and he's just like floating in the air around a fire and a pit and all the other ghouls are just dancing around him. I would probably lose my shit. <laughs> I would lose my ever loving shit. Just the sight of him just being there floating in the air doing all this crazy stuff doing God knows what menacing stuff to her. But they they kind of bury the lead. And this is also where I make my connection to American Horror Story again. They have notes of really good ideas, but then just they let it sit for too long and then it just nullifies itself and then they do nothing with it. Which has been, from what I hear, a big criticism of the show and why a lot of people don't watch it anymore. What were your final thoughts about the movie? Well, like I said, I I didn't find the characters to be likable. Uh, I did not find the film to be particularly scary. And from a narrative perspective, the story did not make sense. Personally, I consider these to be the most important criteria for any medium, no matter what it is. Film, literature, radio shows, theatrical plays, whatever it is, the most important thing is the story and the characters, and I think both of them fall flat. This movie's strengths are in its aesthetics, in its eerie atmosphere. I mean, the whole thing feels like a fever dream. And it really does ask you to fill in all of the shadows with your own interpretation of what's going on. In that sense, I think that it succeeds. I I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. But I'm just on the other end of the spectrum for all those things. I had a great-ass time. <laughs> I had a great-ass time with just the terrible acting, the ca- terrible characters, the decisions that came out of nowhere. It, it, You know, you just, you know, when you have so many holes and with a story like this, it just asks you to fill those with your own um, perspective and your own fears and it just kind of just made that work for me a lot more but I will say the movie is 74 minutes and I know that doesn't seem like a commitment that's like nothing but toward the middle of it you start to feel this movie like I'm talking double clamshell titanic movie like you you (laughs) think you're on the second VHS tape but you're only on the first (laughs) Um, Now, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there may have been external influences on the the great time that you had watching this movie. Yes, I um, I was sick 
and the doctor gave me some medicine and it being in an altered state is you know not that i recommend it in any form or fashion um but putting yourself in mary's mental state does help the enjoyability of this movie quite a bit you know, like I said, it already feels like a fever dream, so I imagine that was just amplified tenfold. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Like, There were moments I was like, okay, is this the movie or have I went to sleep? And it was like <laughs> a mix of the two. But I watched it again 100% sober uh, <laughs> off the sick meds. And I was like, you know what? Oh, all this really did happen. And it's it's about as connected as I thought. I honestly thought that at some points I checked out. But I didn't. That's just where we were in the story. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get to the part of our show where we decide if the movie is deep or if it needs to be cut. Again, if it's deep, we think that the movie has some sort of value and you should probably check it out. Or it needs to be cut and you might want to find something else to watch with your time. So, Jacob, would you do the honors? What was your final verdict? I'm going to give a different verdict based on what you're looking to get out of this film. If you are more of a casual viewer who just wants to watch a good horror movie and enjoy an hour and 17 minutes of your free time, then as much as I hate to say it, I'm going to have to say this this film deserves to be cut. It's, despite being so short, it drags on toward the middle, and for all of the reasons that I've stated prior, it just doesn't really work. But if you are someone who is interested in the art of filmmaking, the history of filmmaking, or the horror genre, if you're interested in something that was influential to a lot of directors that came afterward, like David Lynch and George Romero, then I'm going to say it's deep. And I think that you will enjoy it, or you will at the very least enjoy having experienced it. Well, good. Um, my, my official opinion is I'm going to say it needs to be cut. But I do not mean that in any way that it should discourage you from putting it on if, like you said, you have a genuine interest in this. Just keep in mind when the middle of the movie is reached, that's a good time to go to the bathroom and probably get a snack. And then come back and I swear you won't miss anything. You'll be just as aloof as the rest of the characters are. Thank you so much, guys, for sticking with us here. Next week, I think we're going to be watching Horror Express, released in 1972, starring Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Tilly Savalas. Guys, be on the lookout because there are a lot of movies that you could refer to as the <laughs> spooky choo-choo of the genre when movies like Terror Train, Terror Express, but especially be on the lookout for Horror Express. It is in the public domain, so I think you can watch it on YouTube if you wanted to. And also, I'd like to take a moment to plug our socials. So that way you can get in touch with us and give us good recommendations. You can reach us on our Gmail at deepcutsofhorror at gmail.com or you can catch us on Twitter at deephorrorpod. Again, that is at deephorrorpod on Twitter. Give us a shout out, get us in our DMs, talk to us about your favorite movie, something you'd like to see. We'd be really interested in it. Until then, stay spooky. Thank <laughs> you.